0: If you've got your Bibles, go ahead, open up to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians this is about halfway through your New Testament, uh, maybe a little less than halfway, but right around the middle of your New Testament. If you need a Bible, go ahead and open, uh, raise your hand, and you've got a few people back there who will be handing those out. And kids, I can see you're already, you know the rules, you guys are just to the loop, so thank you. As those Bibles are being passed out, why don't you join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, have your way with us right now. As we open up your word, we've come together as a community already, we have prayed together, we have sung the worthiness of Christ, and now, God, we want to sit underneath the authority of his word. And so, God, use your word to change us and mold us. God forbid that we leave here unchanged, untransformed, I pray for each and every person, no matter what the week has brought in, that today, in this moment, your word would bring about the words we need to hear to be changed and to be made new in Christ. We pray that in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Last week, a movie hit our theaters titled First Man. Has anyone seen that movie yet? Got a few people. Any good? good. I'm waiting to see it. Really good. From over here, says Alden. Thank you. I'm going to take your word on it. I love movies like First Man. I think that kind of falls in line in some ways with some of the reasons I love a lot of our superhero movies is that we love a hero. We love a hero. And, And I think what makes first man so intriguing. It traces the story of Neil Armstrong and his first steps on the moon. Back in 1969, when it seemed like men were doing something that was impossible, to walk on the moon, And there's something about the human experience that longs to, to kind of break the stratosphere of the limitations and the finite nature of what we call humanity. Isn't there something inside of us that loves that movie, that loves watching Neil Armstrong take a step on the moon because it it signals somewhere inside of us that there's more, that that, the humanity is not limited by the things that we experience in our day-to-day, but but there's a way to do something beyond us. We love our heroes because I think they inspire this hope that it's possible to live larger than what we consider our everyday day. It's almost as if when we look at our heroes, the reason they give us hope is because they whisper somewhere deep down inside of us, it's possible to experience more. And we cheer them on whenever we see one man or one woman break through those barriers and perform greater than we ever experienced or thought we could. When I think about the Christian life, might I even kind of go so far as to say the religious life? I think it oftentimes feels like there is this image of Christianity. As if, here's the fullness of life, here's the outer limits of what it means to be human and, and to experience life, and Christianity is a subset within that larger set. I think oftentimes, even for Christians, we see Christianity that way, that there is this grand experience that is all of the human life and all the outer limitations of what humanity is, and to become a Christian is to then kind of fit yourself into this subset Experience, if we think of it that way, a a lesser experience than the fullness of what humanity might make available to us. I think oftentimes it's thought of that way outside of the church, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why many young people are avoiding the church, because they believe in some way that Christianity is a limitation on the human experience. The boundaries that are set around the Christian life are such that it is less than what would be available to me outside of Christianity in the larger human experience that goes beyond. There is this full life, we believe, this adventurous life. And if we were just able to peel back the layers of the stratosphere, if we were to do what is somehow seemingly impossible in our everyday, we could glimpse beyond and tap into that thing. But many people don't think that's what Christianity affords them. They don't see Jesus as the single key that unlocks that one thing inside your heart that longs for more. Today, as we continue in the book of Galatians, Paul is going to be transitioning us. We've been tracing through this book, and and Paul's got this one message. It's the video we show. He's saying, stay in the lane, The lane you are to stay in is the lane of grace. Don't veer to the left or to the right, no matter what anyone tells you. God loves you not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. It's a free gift of grace. Therefore, just trust in Christ. Stay in your lane. Never abandon the gospel of grace. That's the whole book of Galatians. But today he transitions us just a little bit. He pivots not to change His message, but to reveal this nuance and this implication of that gospel of grace. The reality that God loves us not because of what we've done, but because of what's been done on our behalf. He reveals a new implication for us. And it might be summed up this way. Christ has unlocked the fullness of what it means to be human. Far from being a limitation, a subset of the fullness of all that is life, Christianity and Christianity alone peels back the layers of the stratosphere of the human experience. And, and if we were, whatever we were bound by previously, Christianity, Jesus, allows us to experience that adventure that we were originally created for. By faith in the grace of Christ, we experience what Paul calls the blessed life that longing and fulfillment of more. Now, as we dig into Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, I want to give you a bit of a warning. There's a number of layers to this text, and frankly, I'm not going to be able to get to every single one of them today, but I'm going to work through three central layers that Paul uses to teach this point. The first layer is this. The first layer is the filling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit. Let me read to us Galatians chapter, 1, verses 1 to, or chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. Page 973 if you're using those house Bibles. oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh?' Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. <laughs> I love how Paul starts this section off. We've already seen Paul's pretty fiery in this letter, haven't we? Galatians started off with him kind of coming out of the gate pretty angry. And in chapter three, he starts off essentially a modern Rafe translation of that would be Are you crazy? That's what he says. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Are you insane? That's what Paul's saying. You started this thing by grace. God worked powerfully among you. Look back on your own experience. Remember what God has done in your life. Don't you remember those sweet days where Jesus filled you by the Spirit and miracles were done among you and you were seeing things you had never seen before and now a couple years goes by and you tell me that wasn't good enough, you're going to settle for the law? Paul says, are you insane? Have you forgotten what God's done among you? He says, look back. Look back to your personal stories. That's an interesting one for Paul. Paul's the great theologian. Right? When we look at the new testament, we look at the letters that Paul, Pastor Paul wrote. He's the guy who's sitting in a room studying and crafting and parsing verbs and declining nouns and figuring out all the details of our theology. But here, you know what he says? First thing he goes, "You want to know what the unlocked life looks like? Look back on your experiences." Now, our experiences do not define truth. It's important for us to hear that. Paul counters and balances our experiences with what he says next. We can have many experiences in life that are not true. We need to filter our experiences through the lens of truth. However, Paul says, if you're a follower of Christ, look back on your story for just a moment. Do you remember those sweet days? How many of you remember when you first trusted in Jesus Christ? Maybe that's you in this room today. I've spoken to a number of you over the last few weeks where you've been coming around this church and and this is new for you. You're experiencing something new. And it's like, I remember for me, when I was 17, it was like the lights were going off. All of a sudden, the room was being lit up and I was seeing for the first time. And there was this joy and goodness and power. And for some of you in that season, there were miracles being done in your life as God was affirming what you didn't know about him. He was demonstrating his power. That's what Paul's saying. Look back when you first started this journey. The first few sweet days of your journey with Christ. You remember that? Remember how good it was? Paul's saying you can still have that today. Christianity does not just have a honeymoon phase and then it it trails off somehow where it becomes less and less. This marriage with Christ, it keeps getting better and better, but we've got to remember what brought about the sweetness in the first place. It was the filling of the Spirit and drawing near to Jesus Christ. It wasn't religious works. It wasn't following a law that brought about that power. It was drawing near to the goodness and the sweetness of Jesus Christ. Paul says, "Don't, don't stray out of that lane now. Go back to your first love. Now, this is important for us, and and as Christians, we literally just spent a whole sermon a few weeks ago talking about the filling of the Spirit, because the whole second half of Galatians is so saturated in the Spirit. It's like he held off for this moment, chapters 1 and 2, talking all this stuff God's done for us, and then he pounces on us with the Spirit in chapter 3. The filling of the Spirit means this. When you trusted in Jesus Christ, God did something utterly new in your life. That moment when he reconciled you to him, he then poured his spirit into your life. And this is a new work in your life. The spirit of God had never lived inside of you until you trusted in Jesus Christ. Until you placed your faith in God, you are still a vessel that is unclean before God. Your sin has not been dealt with. You carry that on you, and that is not a clean place for the Spirit of God to dwell. He dwells inside holy, clean tabernacles and temples. But once you trust in Jesus Christ, you're cleansed by Christ, and the Spirit of God now dwells inside of you. Now, here's what that means. When the Spirit moves in, literally, the language the Bible uses is that the Spirit moves into the neighborhood. (laughs) <laughs> your, your, your heart. He moves in and He dwells inside of you. He begins something new. Now make sure you understand it's not that God was absent before that. God's over all things. His Spirit is always at work around you orchestrating things. There's nothing that happens in your life that was not God's hand over your life. And yet when you trust in Christ, something new happens from the inside out. He literally changes your motivations. And your soul becomes wet clay for the very first time in the maker's hands. Now here's what that means. Up until that point, when you trusted in Christ, you were a hard rock that was unformable. Now, if you don't believe that, it's what Scripture says was true of you. But once you trust in Christ, now you're wet clay in God's hands. And it doesn't mean that you become this super, uber, mature follower of Christ way to, right away. But for a moment, what was rock hard becomes soft clay, and God starts forming you. When you look back on your own stories and those first few years of following Christ, that oftentimes are so full of power, it's when God first started forming what He was doing in your life. And we were receptive to Him through faith. We were listening to His hands forming what was new in our experience. Our soul was wet clay in the Maker's hands. I saw a video recently of a new product that came out. There was uh, I, I suppose there are some who are born with a disease in their eyes that does not allow them to see color. And just recently, an in, uh, a product was invented, it was a pair of glasses that allows people with this particular disease to see color when they put it on. And there was a family and it was a grandfather's birthday, an older man sitting in the backyard and he had never seen color in his whole life. And the grandkids come around him and they got this present for him, he opens it up, he looks at this box, he goes, what is it? They go, there's glasses, grandpa, put it on. And you see him kind of thinking maybe this is a joke or what is this and he takes the product out and you see him put these glasses on his face and then just rip them off in utter startled fear, perplexity and the emotions just dripping down his face as he saw his granddaughter's color of her shirt for the first time, and the the color of their hair for the first time, and they could see that they had blue eyes, and and it just this brand new experience where everything just came to life in a moment. That's what happens when the Spirit fills you. Nothing, a lot hasn't changed around you. It's not that the circumstances around you change. Oftentimes, it's the same circumstances, but for the first time, the Spirit's empowering you to see the same things through a different lens. You see for the first time what was broken around you with God-filled saturation and sovereignty over it, and the Spirit inside of you cries out, and this is good and different. Don't veer from that. Don't veer from that. When the Spirit begins that work in you and you start seeing things through the lens of God with His hand over your life, it's good. and Your faith begins to grow. Some of us have been blind for so long and then you experience the color saturation of the Holy Spirit and you never want to go back, but sometimes faith begins to grow stale and you start forgetting all about faith, you start forgetting all about the sweetness of just drawing close to Jesus and we start depending on a works-based righteousness and we forget about what it was like to see color for the first time. The second implication of the filling of the Holy Spirit is in regards to how passive this is. You know, the language we use is that you receive the Holy Spirit. This is something that God does to you. It's not something you can do on your own. Grace is always a gift that is received. You know, I was reading this phenomenal book recently, and, and, and in this book, this writer is just describing how much of life is actually passive and we are recipients of. Author's name was a French Catholic mystic. What a strange author I was reading, but I just was dumbfounded by this guy. He was saying, you know, About 1% of your life is actually the things you make of it. We think we have so much control. We think we're forming our destiny. The choices we make, the steps we take, the places we go, the people we have relationships with, it can feel like we're in control of our life and we're forming our life. But he says, you know what? That's such a lie if you really think about it. And this is a horrifying thing to do, by the way. But if you want to sit in a quiet room one day and think about this, I encourage you to do so you have about 1% control over your life, if that. 99% of what happens to you and what forms you and what creates you, you have nothing to do with. Let's just think about the two biggest things in your life. Who you are. You have no say in that. The wellspring of what makes you, you. Your personality, your will, your motivations, how you're wired. Sure, Sure, there's stuff that pours into you over your life. Sure, you make choices in your life that will, that will orchestrate and bend that a bit, but you know what? That's about 1%. 99% of that, when you go inside and you think, what, what makes me, me? You received that. You didn't even have say over that. that. That builds up from somewhere deep in this divine cavern of God pouring into his creation will and emotion and soul you got no say over that. You're a passive recipient of what makes you you, and that's your life. You know, the second one, you have no control over death. The one thing that lies over the horizon for every one of us, the one thing that shapes just about every decision we make in life, even when we're not thinking about it, it looms over the horizon for every single one of us. It's why we orchestrate our life in the way we do. It's why we think about our years in the way we do. It's why we make decisions about career and family the way we do, even when we're not thinking about it. It forms so much of us, and yet we are passive recipients. We can't choose the day, the time, the hour, the way. We receive it. So much of life is passively received, so it is with faith and this is so important, when you're filled by the Holy Spirit, both the active moments of your life, the one percent, become enlightened and enlivened by the Holy Spirit who says, now your choices, what you actively do, you're going to see that through a new lens. God's going to inspire you. It's going to fill you in a way that you actually make choices that bring about life and goodness and the pleroma. That's a Greek word for the fullness of God in you and around you. For the first time, you're wet clay, and the active choices you make are being fueled by God, but that's just one percent. The other 99 percent, the passivities in your life, all of the world bearing down on you, now the Spirit lives in you, and you begin to see what you thought was just consequence and bad luck or good luck as God. His hand orchestrating the divine direction of the universe. You couldn't see it before. This changes everything about you. When you put those glasses on and you see your activities and your passivities as divinely inspired and full of color, it changes your whole day. Who moved in in your neighborhood or your association or your building was not just luck. God brought them near you. You can't see it till the Spirit dwells inside of you. You wouldn't have thought twice about it, but all of a sudden you're a Christian filled by the Spirit, seeing in color for the first time, and that thing that you had no thing, no saying for the first time, for the first place, you all of a sudden see God's been orchestrating this all along. You see, the Holy Spirit enlivens the human experience. It's not a limitation. It's the fullness The limitation is to think that your actions, your activities, drive your life. That's not just a limitation. That's as silly as it gets. Oh, foolish world, who has bewitched you? Right? Who has made you think you can control all of this? No, no, no. So much as life is passive. See it through the lens of God by being filled by the Spirit. Number two, the second layer of here. Man, I'm going slow. Let's go a little quicker. Number two. Abraham's blessing. I'm getting excited. I'm going too deep. Okay. Abraham's blessing. Here's the second layer. Abraham's blessing. Now, this might sound like an interesting term, but it is so important to the story of the Bible. If we don't get Abraham's blessing, we don't get the Bible. We're missing it. Let me read to you chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's fascinating. Let me just tell you what that verse means. The gospel is this. Jesus Christ loved you, sacrificed himself on a cross, shedding his blood in order to conquer the divide that was between you and God. That happened in the year 30 AD. Abraham lived a few thousand years before that. Let me read this to you again. Verse 8, the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Thousands of years before Christ, he preached the gospel to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Here's Abraham's story in a nutshell. Abraham was a man who lived in a very chaotic time, The world was falling apart. It was shortly after the nations were scattered abroad, and there was just war, and there was tumult, and there was political arguments, and it was just a chaotic world. And then God tapped Abraham on the shoulder and said, Abraham, i got a plan for your life. I'm going to do something through you you never would have imagined. It's so much bigger than anything you ever could have dreamed. I'm literally going to change world history through you. God does that to each and every person, by the way, who decides to follow Jesus. Same story. I'm literally going to change world history through you, Abraham. And then Abraham goes before God, and and Abraham trusts in God by faith. And he receives this blessing that God is going to justify the Gentiles. That's the nations that have been scattered abroad. That's you and I. God is going to make us right one day through Abraham. Abraham didn't know how this was going to happen. All he knew is that he had a promise from God and he trusted in it by faith. He could not see with clarity thousands of years before that Jesus Christ would die on a cross and that would be the way the blessing would come. All he knew is that when God makes a promise, he follows through on it. Did you know that when God makes a promise, it never fails? When he makes a promise in your life, it never fails. This is why we go over and over and over again on the promises of God because we've got to build our life on them. We're building our life on something, and if it's not on the promises of God, it's on something that's not as secure as the promises of God. If we're building our life on someone else's promises or on the promises of the world or the promises of money, we're going to be utterly let down when all of those things fail to come through. God's Word has always come through. It came through for Abraham. And did you know that there are promises that are still unfulfilled that he spoke of for future events? Here's what that means. When you look at the promises of God, you can wait with eager anticipation and expectation that the promises He made are going to happen. He's never failed yet. He won't fail now. I, I was listening to a preacher recently say his prayer over his family is that his family would experience 11 generations of followers of Christ as a result of his legacy. What a prayer! What a prayer then a man would say, man, I, I want my kids, my kids' kids, my kids' kids' kids, 11 times over to trust in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's a prayer pray. And, and what we have to see is this promise that God made Abraham is a 1,000 times bigger than that prayer. That, that's a mighty prayer that 11 generations would know Christ. But God promised Abraham, through you the nations will come to know God. And when God says that the nations will be blessed through you, what he's saying, that word blessed, means that the nations are going to have God's love and power and strength and glory and beauty declared over them and experienced through their life. Let me connect us just a little bit backwards. We started by saying that there was something in our souls that longs to peel back the stratosphere and say there is more to life. There's color in this black and white world. That's called Abraham's blessing. He promised it a long time ago, and he told Abraham, one day through you, I'm going to bring about color to the nations. They're going to see life in its fullness. Abraham's blessing is going to be made available to common people like you and me who have no right to receive it. That's what Abraham's blessing is. Paul is saying that longing inside of your heart, that's the blessing of Abraham. That author I was telling you about before, he, he, he describes that this way. Let, let, me, let me read to you what this looks like when color comes into you, when you receive Abraham's blessing. He says this. This will come up behind me. He says, God, in all that is most living and incarnate in Him, is not far away from us. This is once we trust in Christ. Altogether, apart from the world, we see, touch, hear, smell, and taste about us. Rather, He awaits us every instant in our action." In the work of the moment, there is a sense in which he is at the tip of my pen, my spade, my brush, my needle, of my heart and of my thought. By pressing the stroke, the line, or the stitch on which I am engaged to its ultimate natural finish, I shall lay hold of that last end towards which my innermost will tends. The spirit, hear this language, the spirit suranimates, It suranimates, hence it introduces a higher principle of unity into our spiritual life to give the Christian life the full flavor of humanity. That's Abraham's blessing. That every moment of yours, everything you do, when you go to work, it's a holy, spiritual moment. When you're tucking your kids in, it's a holy, spiritual moment of God forming His divine will through your life. When you're walking, when you're standing, every moment of your life filled by the Spirit, that's Abraham's blessing. And he said it's going to come to the nations. That's you and I. It's a free gift that we receive. The way to receive Abraham's blessing, the way to live that kind of life is not by going through religious principles and practices. It's not by climbing a mountain or going on a trip anywhere. It's not by saying enough prayers or coming into this room enough times. It's not by joining a small group or serving or volunteering or giving your money away. Abraham's blessing is available to anyone who will draw near to Jesus Christ. Anyone who will just simply look at Jesus Christ and say, you've earned it on my behalf. I can't do it on my own. I'm tired of trying to do it on my own. I trust that Jesus can fill me and help me see the world that I long to live in. And then Jesus says, Abraham's blessing, it's yours. You can live in it today. Abraham's blessing. The third layer of this text is what's called the curse of the law. The curse of the law. And I hope we understand this one fully. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, for all who rely on the works of the law, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, funny language, funny language, are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified, we talked about that word last week, no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Let's pause right then, there. Paul says, all who rely on works of the law shall live by them. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That word rely, that means to depend on. That means to lean on, it means to trust in, it means to build your life upon. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Paul's saying that there are two ways to go through your life. One way is to lean on your moral superiority and your ability to do things and your ability to make something of yourself. If you rely on that, it says you're under a curse. The other place you can lean is to rely on grace. If you lean on grace, if you depend on grace, if you build your life on grace, if you don't stray from grace, so not just starting in grace and seeing color, but then continuing in grace, you live in the fullness of what God's invited you to. If you're relying on law, you experience a curse. So many of us today would describe our faith as something other. Let me just say this really clearly. What I've been describing so far, this color-filled life, I want to ask you really seriously here. Is that your experience of Christianity? When you came into this room, when I first opened this sermon today, when you thought of Christianity, did it seem more like a a subset of all that was life? Or did it seem like it took the life you knew before and blew off the perimeter of that circle, and now you're in this outstretched, eternal, infinite expanse of experiencing the newness of God? If you're in this place where Christianity feels like a subset where there's parts of human experience that are squelched because of your religion… It might be that you don't fully understand what it means to be free in Christ and to experience what God's invited you into. Peter says that feeling like you're limited, that's a curse. That's a consequence of the law. The curse of the law is that we don't experience the fullness of life. It's that ultimately we're separated from God. The God that suranimates every moment of us we're separated from that, and we can't experience it, and all we see is the natural around us, and all we live in is the reality of brokenness, trying to solve problems on our own, trying to get through hard moments on our own, trying to fix our heart and everyone else's heart around us on our own. That's exhausting. That's a cursed life. It's, it's, it's a life of living in, in a type of hell. Hell. Where there's no forgiveness, right? Hell is where there's no forgiveness. And when you experience the curse of the law, when you're trying to make something of yourself and make yourself right with God by your own merit, that's living in a type of hell where there's no forgiveness, where you're all on your own. Paul says the law reveals our cursed nature. The law is, in that sense, is a little bit like an MRI machine. When you go and you have a sickness inside of you, and you go underneath an MRI, The the MRI has one particular job. It it scans you and it reveals what's broken inside of you. That's what God's law is. If you look at all God's laws, all 613 of them, maybe just settle for the Ten Commandments, it serves as an MRI for your life. When you put your life underneath that MRI, it reveals what's broken about you. None of us can live up to it. It shows you where your heart is off. That MRI has no ability to heal you. It never could. The law can never save you. All it can ever do is lay you underneath it and then reveal to you what was broken about you. What you need once you've been revealed that you have a brokenness and a sickness inside of you is you need medicine. You need someone to come along and heal you. You need some kind of medicine that's capable of dealing with the fullness of the issue that you have that the law revealed inside of you. An MRI can't fix you. It can only reveal the brokenness inside of you. And that's what he says the law does. The law reveals that something's not right about us. You want to look at this? You want to challenge yourself? Open up to Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Contrast it against your life. And all of a sudden you'll see a great chasm between who you are today and who God desires you to be. It reveals something about you. You know, we live in this weird space of living under the law all the time. I've tried through this series in Galatians to show us how oftentimes we depend on the law. And today I want to show us a few more examples. Some of us live in the law by the way we fail to offer forgiveness. What's forgiveness? Forgiveness is when you look at someone who has harmed you, hurt you, betrayed you, broken you, caused you harm. And you say, in my heart of hearts, I give you peace. I hold nothing against you. I offer you love in response, not because you're offering love back, but just because I have something to offer you. Forgiveness says, I hold no grudge. You are released. Forgiveness can seem so countercultural. It can seem so counter to logic that we have in our mind. You see, our logic would say, that person needs to learn a lesson. I don't want to encourage irresponsible behavior. How can I forgive if that person's not even sorry for what they've done? Forgiveness can seem completely illogical and unfair, but that's the definition of grace, isn't it? It's totally unfair. We go before God, we don't deserve forgiveness, but God offers us overwhelming, awe inspiring love and forgiveness, not based on our own merit, but in the spite of our rebellion to Him. See, in this sense, Hinduism sounds so much better, doesn't it, with their doctrine of karma? You get what you deserve. Sometimes when you're failing to forgive someone and you're living by law, you're making them live up to a level of moral superiority that you yourself don't oftentimes live up to or did not live up to before you knew Christ, what we really say is karma would be a way better, better way to do life. You get what you deserve. They wrong you, ah, well, that'll sow seeds later in the future, I'll just wait till that gets them. That seems way more fair, doesn't it? Grace cuts across the line and says, no, 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 no. All are sinful, fall short of the glory of God. Their sins are not greater than your sins. Their rebellion's not greater than your rebellion. All are equalized before the God of the universe. And if you've received grace, it's not because you were better than the person next to you. It was because in your rebellion, God said, I love you despite it. And now as ones who've been filled up by grace, we for the first time filled by the Spirit can actually offer grace. Completely illogical, unfair grace to people who don't deserve it. And as Christians, when we withhold that, we're living by law. We're saying, you know what, life is about moral superiority. I think I'll settle for karma. You know what the biggest thing about forgiveness is? Oftentimes forgiveness has nothing to do with the person you're forgiving, but it has all to do with you. It has to do with freeing you from the slavery of holding on to a grudge God uses forgiveness powerfully because what it is is it's a demonstration of God's grace poured into your life. Until you can really forgive someone who's harmed you, you don't quite know what it was like for Christ to forgive you because you harmed him. Philippians says this, the first and often the only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiveness. I'm sorry, this is Lewis Smead's. The first and often the only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiveness. When we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free and then discover the prisoner we set free was us. See, if you're failing to forgive, you haven't yet learned what it means for grace to fill a sinner like you. God offered you Abraham's blessing when you were the least deserving of it. We so often settle for law. Every one of our lives have to go underneath the MRI of the law before God. And what is revealed is that we are incapable of going before God because we are cursed. But then read the end of this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? How? By becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to you and me, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Speaking a few thousand years before Christ ever came, the prophet Jeremiah wrote the, these words, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no healing there? Thousands of years later, Christ came and He became a curse for you. He took on the cancer that was inside of you. He bore it on His shoulders, that that rebellion to God that caused a separation between you and God. The hell that we live in before we know Jesus Christ, where there is no forgiveness, where there is no grace, where there is no love, where it's all black and white. Jesus went to the cross when you deserved it, when we deserved it. He went to the cross, and He became that curse. Hear those words. If you read that verse, and you don't understand in a new way the suffering that Christ took on on the cross, you've missed the power of Galatians chapter 3. He became a curse for us. The curse, ultimately, is the separation from the Father. I wonder why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because He was becoming a curse for us. Standing in our place where we belong, bearing on him an eternity of wrath and punishment against sin in a short amount of time. The eternal God bearing an eternity of sin, an eternity of rebellion in a few short hours. Imagine what was being poured on him in that moment. Experience for just a moment the suffering that he went through on your behalf. So that, so that you might experience Abraham's blessing so that you might experience the fullness of the life that you were called to, created for, and longed for inside your soul, so that the Spirit of God might fill you and you would see color and see your passivities and your activities fueled and motivated by the God who says there's more to life than going through rote religion. I've created you to experience Abraham's blessing so that you might be called sons of God, so that you might be Abraham's children, so that God would have his way with you. He became a curse for you. The old spiritual songwriters had a song. They said, there is a balm in Gilead. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the wounded soul. The prophet Jeremiah said, where is the medicine for the MRI status that every one of us is sick? Jesus standing on the cross, that's the balm in Gilead. He's the healer for our soul. He's the physician who went underneath his own scalpel to fix your disease. Oh, hear what Christ has done for you. Jesus loves you enough to become a curse for you. Don't settle for law. Who's bewitched you? Who's fooled you into thinking that moral superiority and going through life, trying to earn your way, can give you life? Stay in the lane of grace, Paul says receive Jesus' love and grace. Receive this free gift and then live by it every day. Think of it the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning. I see color because of what Christ has done for me. Think of it the last moment before you go to bed at night. Let him motivate your moments when you're at work so that every keystroke on your keyboard, every letter you write with your pen is fueled by the Spirit of God inside of you that you did not have until you received Christ. That's Galatians 3. Galatians 3 the abundant life, the Spirit-filled life of Abraham's blessing where the curse is no more because Christ has taken it on your behalf. Will you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in the reality of Abraham's blessing. We know so little of it. We are just infants in this thing called Christianity. Some of, sometimes it feels like we've taken almost no steps in seeing with these new glasses and lenses Christ has given us. God, we need you to activate us. We need you to return us to grace, that we would be those that that bear grace to one another, that are living representatives of grace-filled people that have received more love than we could ever imagine. Thank you for becoming a curse for us. Otherwise, we'd still be bearing that curse. God, we praise you this morning in Jesus' name.